Hello and welcome to Royale Without Cheese, our bi-weekly podcast in which we discuss both the classic and the unknown of Hollywood and foreign cinema from the then and now. We are your hosts, me, Tomás Ferreira, Leonardo Miranda. Hey there, it's time to bond. It is time to bond. And Miguel Aido. Hello there. Hi, hey, hey. Three filmmakers in informal dialogue with a film review each episode. Today is Double Bill Day, as we connect a modern film to an early one in the history of cinema. As part of our program, reviews in both English and Portuguese will be available for different listeners. Buckle up, because today RWC celebrates 60 years of James Bond, cinema's most sophisticated spy with a license to kill. This episode will be in English and we'll be having a go at Kai Hamilton's 007 Goldfinger and Kerry Fukunaga's 007 No Time to Die. Portuguese speakers can head the Portuguese labeled content section. Now sit back and hope you enjoy. Let's go, Bond. Time to die, Goldfinger, all the bonds, celebration day, party time. Party time. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I don't Goldfinger? know. Goldfinger, I guess we can start. Talk about them interchangeably. Yeah, I don't know how you want to do and structure this. Well, you know, I took my notes interchangeably, very much comparing the two. And I, and I think there will be moments to you, I will be talking more about one than the other, but essentially there's a lot of ways I can pick it up in terms of comparisons. Sounds good to me. It's to me, like even watching so many Bond films, they kind of blend into one for me. So I don't even know. I can tell them apart sometimes, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> In what way don't you, can't you tell them apart? I don't know. What, what it's just, it's not even that I can't tell them apart. It's more that I, I'm trying to think what happened in them. And my mm -hmm. mind goes blank. I just, ah, I don't remember. Okay. I, the things I mostly remember about these films is the relationship between him and the girl. And the, the more I like that relationship, the more I'm likely to like the film. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've noticed. And the villains as well. Not me. I, the villains bore me to death a lot of the times, <laughs> to be honest. Really interesting. No, but in the sense that if you remember the villains, it also makes... Yeah, yeah, true. But yeah, the plots are fucking incomprehensible sometimes. Like the living daylights. I do not know oh, what yeah, the, that's, the that's plan very is. That's <laughs> what very the convoluted. fuck is going on? I agree, I agree. It's very convoluted. But yeah, I like got, that one. I mean, me and Mike, when he saw that film for the first time, was like, I, I, he does this, then he goes there to, you know, Afghanistan, then there's this whole plot with opium and then diamonds commercialize them and then machine guns warfare and just a, you know, a bunch of points to A to B to C but anyway that's a particular convoluted one but but it has it has other qualities as well yeah yeah I like that one a lot actually but you know what uh, I think that regarding Goldfinger going back to that what I think it's so special about Bond particularly about Bond through the ages being these six years of this action hero, the first action hero in cinema, really taking the first steps for what is going to be the blockbuster. And that is Bond. 
I think Marvel movies and whatever the kind owes much to the lane that Bond started to construct in the 60s because there wasn't anything like that uh, back then, really. But I think what's so special about Bond is that in the early days, there were really kind of low budget films starting out. And as they moved along from the first to second to third, they were really increasing in budget. Uh, and they're really giving also the first steps into this kind of high concept spionage world where they allow themselves to be uh, to be imaginative and play with the odds, the stakes, the representation of what is this spy. Also taking a lot from the books, but also reinterpreting the books and doing free adaptations. And I think in Bond, there's something that is very specific of Bond even today. And that's something is reshaping over the ages because the audience becomes more demanding as these kind of films become greater in scope, greater in effect. And that thing that belongs to Bond is hyper-realism. I think the, the thing that Bond really has that's a trademark, it's, it's hyper-realism. You have things that, in that representation of the spy, you have things like, for example, at the beginning of Goldfinger, Bond swims out the shore and comes out with a seagull on his head, <laughs> which is kind of a, a sign of secret <laughs> intelligence, which today, by today's standards, it would just be corny. And But it's it, it's kind of, or, or for example, the way he fights our job in the film, it's so tacky and so clumsy. But it's at the same time, it has a, a sort of a, a very real on the moment done it's not way. It's just so our job, Every, everyone. Everyone, or just Sean Connery running, as Mike likes to say, <laughs> doesn't run very well. <laughs> But those things are part of something which I think is very special with the early films, which is this hyper-realism where they would ask you for a particular suspension of disbelief that goes the extra mile. They would ask you kind of, these are the idiosyncrasies of the earlier films where they would kind of ask you to be a child again and to believe uh, in the trickery of cinema. That's, you know, all the backdrop projections and the the seagull on his head and whatnot, uh, the ejector seat on his car, it's something to be believed in as within the world of James Bond, which is always played between serious and funny. I think, and, and I think when it strikes a good balance between serious and funny and the audience, and the audience is in on it, that, that some things are unbelievable, but at the same time, because the character believes so much in them, we also can accept them. Uh, it's a good spot. I think, for example, when it comes to Roger Moore, the balance is completely off in some of his films. Like, it's just Roger Moore himself, the Bond, is winking at the camera because he's telling you, see, funny, <laughs> we are funny. <laughs> you know, and it, it, does, it does happen oftentimes. I mean, the thing with, with the Sean Connery's James Bond is um, you don't really feel he's, a, he's an action-oriented person. Um, you feel more like he's a suave guy that definitely does well with women and uh, and you know he's good in those situations where you need to be uh, smooth and conversational but every time you ask him to do more action stuff I mean it's not just in the actor it's in the direction as well in the choreo choreography um, I mean as you said it's it's um, it's tacky. It's uh, it's slow. Often the, the fights are very slow. The punches are very slow. The way they fall. Um, so this is probably one of those um, aspects that these early early films. Uh, well, we have to contend with. But yeah, when you compare it to more recent films, uh, I mean, it's just 
overwhelming the difference because it's so much stunt based and so much choreography um so much so much choreography is involved so i mean it was one of the more distinctive aspects that i thought was different um comparing the two films i think oh definitely and um i mean i still be precisely because of that asking me of the earlier films for a, a special kind of suspension of disbelief because of the of let's say being the early days of it the early days of this action hero uh i just accepted and believe in it and i like to, to that the film is inviting me to believe this which is so unbelievable at the same time i i, I do like one thing that you said which is sean connery's strongest uh point as bond is his suaveness i think a great thing that I like about these films, these earlier films of Bond, that does not happen much today, sadly, but also not sadly because it's something precious of the times and it marks those times. So it's it's good that with different Bonds we get different flavors, really. But with Sean Connery, we have this thing where the action scenes, what the film is about is within the machinations of, the, of a franchise and how it works, of course, but still what the film is about is Bond has the character his irony, his suaveness, his charm, his boyish flair, you know, and you have a lot of scenes in Goldfinger, as much as Dr. Noen from Russia with Love and whatnot, where it's just Bond relating with other people, either foes or friends, and him showing his irony. And I love Sean Connery's acting in particular, because he's top-notch at representing that more than Roger or others, because he just has these sweet moments where, for example, he's bored with Q's explaining of the gadgetry and the camera, travels to him and he's like oh, here we go again it's all seen in his face or for example building up his sex appeal and he's there right up in the beginning of the film you have just a little scene where he's on a hotel corridor he picks up a key from a mate and the key's like locked to a like a thread that is on her waist and she he pulls her to him so he can open Goldfinger Suite. And she's like, oh my God, that's Goldfinger Suite. And he's like, I know. <laughs> so It's so funny. And uh, at the same time, of course, it's the way it's orchestrated, the key connected to the waist. It has so much to do with kind of a seductive playfulness. And he's the best at doing these things. And I remember other moments of Sean's in other films like Thunderball, where he uses this irony and he jokes with people in such a funny way and um it's really and he they really take up moments like for example his conversations with money penny you actually are seeing two people just he stops from m's you know he comes out of from m's briefing and he's just talking with her and it's the banter it's the flirt and you're seeing these two characters just existing in this room still while for example in skyfall where they retrieve the money penny character they try to have that banter it's fun of course but at the same time I think today, by today's standards, there's a, a more focus not in character, not on really building Bond has what really makes up the film, but they're really more concerned with the plot must go on. I think today it's a lot, a lot about the plot. And for example, in Skyfall, they're having the banter, but they're walking along the corridor because they need to get to M's office. So it's always moving. It's, they're never still. The camera is never there with us and still with us and focus on the moment people talking. Another instance of this, if you see Goldfinger, has very little action sequences. It's just the car, the end battle. The rest is just people coexisting with each other. And a lovely thing I like is the golf sequence with Goldfinger. It's always about a sense of play. It's always about the sense of relation of Bond with the others and how he gets 
how it comes above the you know uh, dealing with other people, dealing with golf finger. I love the golf sequence because, for example, one of the strong points of Casino Royale with Craig is the poker game because the whole film, an action film, stops to for people to sit down, the viewers as well, to sit down and just watch poker and just watch these people relate in these you know hazy smoke air filled seductive casino they're playing it's you know it's a game of seduction a game of who wins kind of machismo kind of thing it's very it's just a it, it, it bond has this thing which is different from all the mission impossibles uh or whatever which is it's very own particular flavor for a glamour or a charm that really comes from the character and i think it really shines through in these early films where the focus is completely on him and these down to earth moments, those to me are the action sequences. And then, of course, you have the proper scenes like the car chase. But uh, what I will say is that watching, I watched a bunch of these films and my conclusion was almost always that the least interesting parts of the film for me were the action scenes in almost all of them. Because I don't, it's what you're saying. I, I do like to see the character use, you know, uses wit and uses banter and do do all that kind of stuff, even with the villains. And I think that's the most interesting part, especially here in Goldfinger, where I think the action scenes are just not that interesting or well done even. They're just or kind existent. of- Or existent. Yeah, when they do exist, it's sort of like, it feels like they're, we have to do it. <laughs> you know, it's an action film, I guess, but I, I'm not a big fan of them. But this film, yeah, it's a, this is a charming. I think uh, of all the the Connery films I've seen, which was Doctor No from Russia, and then uh, you only, you only twice. twice. Yeah, yeah. That, this is. I think this is the only one that I really felt charmed by the character and by him as an actor. I think he really brings, yeah, a suaveness to this one that is very enchanting. He's great. And it's his best performance, I think, of all the the ones I've seen. And for, and there's a lot of interesting camera work, and and within his acting and the blocking, for example, when he meets uh, Jill Masterson, the first let's say Bond girl in the film that works for Goldfinger, there's this whole play once again with the relationship of him with the camera and him with the girl, she, the whole mise en scène about she being laying down on the beach chair and him taking her own, you know, she. He he takes uh, a whole dominance over the scene and over her because she li he literally takes her eyes, her binoculars through which she he is she was seeing the whole card game with Goldfinger and he's having the conversation really while he's looking through the binoculars, but she's not he's not really looking at her he's just talking asking him, her questions about his boss, her boss, um, and you see the the whole language between. The just position of close-ups and how Goldfinger is reacting to Bond's banter, how she is reacting to Bond's playfulness as well. And all of this while he's not looking at her and he's measuring up what kind of a man Goldfinger is. And he learned two things about Bond. That he, uh, well, one big thing is that he, he's a man who does a job, he's determined, but while he does a job, he has fun with it. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, he's doing it, yeah, he's actually that, doing that's something. That's hinted a lot, a lot of times during this film. The sort of struggle to discipline himself not yeah, to yeah, definitely, go definitely. after a girl or something. And then that has consequences, like the girl dying later on from gold paint, which is another moment where I find that it, it is about, 
these out, seemingly outdated things, but that actually are very are the very own idiosyncrasies of these earlier films that I like, which is this balance between serious and the serious and the fun, this hyper realism. You have odd job coming into the into the room, this Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcockian shadow, which is really not Hitchcock because Hitchcock in his film North by Northwest essentially inspired uh, James Bond and Cary Grant was considered for the role of Bond in the early days. Ian Fleming, the writer, wanted him for Bond, but they got John Connery instead. And um, oh well, oh well. <laughs> and you know, it's it's if I mean, you know, the thing, the, it's one, of, it's one of those things that the, what takes a big trait in these films. What is the action sequences to me? What is so exhilarating is seeing this strangeness, uh, these these odd things happening. Like you know, this guy, you have a big hand coming into frame, which is Odd Job's hand. And giving a judo shop in <laughs> John Connors as he falls from the and then you see his shadow and there's a quirky music going on. Ding, ding. But he, even he, even he to pass out, uh, it takes his time. Exactly, it takes his time. And then it's it's the very own thought that after that, you, you need to think that Odd Job sit down on the bed. He knocked out uh, Jill Masterson, put her dead. And uh, he painted her, painted her gold while Bond was unconscious. He took an hour doing that. <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> and then when he wakes up, Bond he takes it very seriously. Oh my God, cabaret dancers do this as well, but they leave a patch. <laughs> and I'm like, it's got the whole fun of it. I'm like, and it's like, there's a perfect balance. I'm taking it very seriously at the same time as I understand it's very funny. While, for example, Roger Moore to me doesn't do this, and um, yeah, I find I find that to be the very interesting thing with uh, Sean's Bond. Yeah, and that scene you mentioned with Jill, I mean, you have another example, which is, which is the directing, uh, you know, shot example, which is the the view of the cards of the binoculars, which is obviously not the sort oh, of yeah. view you would get from a, <laughs> very a hotel amplified. very far away, but it's this sort of thing that you kind of go with it. These little gimmicks, uh, and you know, I guess it's a sign of the times as well. And for example, the the hat from Anjab that works like a, some sort of <laughs> yes. cutting, magical cutting knife, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't even know what's. <laughs> I think it's a razor in the hat, like a, a Peaky Blinders thing. Yeah, but when he like hits the girl, circular. like obviously maybe it's because let's of censorship. Let's not talk physics. Let's not talk yeah. physics with Bond. She doesn't move, like <laughs> doesn't cut her head. That would be cool if it yeah. capitated. It just like kind of knocks her. So I don't know if it's like a razor or it's just the power of his throw. <laughs> it's so just... good that it like knocks her out. I think it's out. a combination. It's the power of his trust and the razor. Plus, he doesn't look like a villain. It looks like this, this like this sweet little man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't believe he wants to decapitate people. And... Yeah. But um, I think, and Bond has this very interesting tradition with henchmen. Bond kind of, it, it's a beast that feeds upon itself, right? It's something that, it goes back to its tropes, to its elements that particularly fans want to revisit and revisit fresh and new, which happens a lot in, for example, No Time to Die. And I love those particular Easter eggs, but at the same time, uh, he wants to present them anew, like I said. So, um... in a sense, the, the the sort of blind uh, bionic eye guy, the henchman from No Time to Die, is a oh, bit. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. I mean, that's the thing that was similar. I was to follow up with, he but is... even in in the even in the goofiness, like the the yeah, scenes yeah. that present him, he always makes this face like a like <laughs> yes. a like with like Dwayne Johnson with the eye and the. Yeah. It's like uh, sometimes I even think it's too much, and that's kind of a the feeling I have from old films of Bond, not not the most recent one. Mm. I liked, you know, I like that too much. I like, I like his, you know, it's uh, the over the topness. Um, I don't know. It's 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 kind of its own language. It's contained over the topness. It's its own language. At at its best, it does that. Or like when when Bond discovers that he has a bionic eye, he, it, there's a shot of Bond doing like looking at his bionic eye with his pout, and then looking at the bike. Mm, there's the bike there. I'm gonna use it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think this No Time to Die in particular has very good comeback of henchmen it's a it's a, like logan ash I, I, he has very good identifiable traits being this prick <laughs> white sh clean white pressed shirt <laughs> his his smile his yeah that he does with his teeth looks like or, a frat boy yeah or primo the henchman of Safin with the bionic i really like him you know in past films with craig we, we didn't have very much you know very good henchmen like mr hinks which is who is the batista inspector yeah, he has a good gimmick, has a presence, but he's not very well used. And beyond that, it's really no time to die with the henchman story. I think that's just all my overall feelings on the Craig era is that there's a lot of good actors and ideas, but they're not well used. Yes. Like Leia, Leia Seydu, I don't think her character is... Like the No Time to Die kind of is based around her in terms of the emotional arc depends on your relationship to that character and Craig's the Bond relationship to that character. And I don't think the character is well-developed or built enough in those two films, Spectre and No Time To Die. So that's why, personally, it kind of falls flat a lot of the times for me. Yes, uh, Spectre falls flat on a lot of things. I think that's one of them. But I think No Time To Die redeems a bit the the well the relationship between bond and and madeline uh, for me it although, uh, yeah but although yeah i think it's mostly it's more of an emotional film rather than an emotional relationship i think it it when you, when you really yeah. when you really think about it i don't think there's a lot of true moments of connection um that would warrant such a well, such a tragic ending, for example, or yeah, yeah, the yeah. connection that they establish. I don't think it's quite at the same level. I think it's very over the top and doesn't really earn that yeah. sentimentality unless you're like an, you know, an insane fan of James Bond, maybe like Tomás. <laughs> maybe <laughs> no, he connects to it more. I get it. Yeah. But I'll still say, like, I do feel a bit sad by the end. Like, it's... It's a bit of a cheat code because it is yeah precisely it's what i feel it's kind of a duality about it you know because i think that and this is common in goldfinger and no time to die there's i think that it's there's both these mistakes living bond doesn't seem to be able to really tie things through in the last act in the third act i mean the third act of goldfinger there are a lot of shit going on that <laughs> a lot of cliches a lot of mistakes so that's where the film kind of falls apart a little bit for me in some instances no time to die as well um, and in No Time to Die, I agree with you in the sense that Madeline is not very well like developed. I think, although that is true, I think No Time to Die does a better job 
the inspector does in making her a little bit more interesting with, okay, we see a little bit of her backstory with Safin, which is actually the thing I like best about the villain. I think the villain is extremely weak, but I think the one thing I like about him and I think should have been explored further is the fact that we have this very rare thing, which has never been, except for Live and Let Die perhaps, which is this connection between the Bond villain and the Bond girl, the Bond villain being in love by the Bond girl, because he becomes obsessed with this idea within him that, oh, I was spared and she's going to be spared too and I'm sparing her so her life belongs to me. He becomes very obsessed by this, by this idea in, her, in his own hand. It doesn't make sense, but that makes up for this kind of toxic obsession, love thing in his head. And I think, do that. I mean, I mean I'm very much, rather much more interested in the villain that his whole plan, at least at first, comes from the fact that he wants to steal Bond's girlfriend and he's like lovingly obsessed with her. And then that spurs the whole master plan for example i think the poison garden which is a great element that Safin has is not well developed that could be a real explored instead of the nanobots that is the poison that is the virus whatever and um the nanobots thing it's just he's all over the place as a villain he has too many pointers he's like first of all he wants to as the, first of all there's the relationship with Madeline, but then there's the, the nanobot stick and the poison garden stick the nanobot stick he wants to presumably save the world from all the criminals the bad people and he's going to terminate them all in the subtext but then he's going to sell the nanobots to some buyers so he's kind of has commercial views he's all over the place and the thing with villains in this film is that both of the like with Safin is that they are only puring mischievous malevolent words to be villainy and the motivations are all kind of Ooh, like Blofeld is, I mean, I think he's better in this film in terms of presentation. His introduction, like Anibal Lecter kind of style in prison is great. But the thing, the conversation itself, the whole reveal is like really lame. Like, uh, it was, it's very cheap to, to put James. Uh, that is, the way that Blofeld dies is just sort of a... It's so anticlimactic. It's like James decides, oh, uh, no, I'm getting angry. I'm going to choke you to die. It's it like... did, and it didn't feel just, it didn't feel like he was that angry to start choking him. I didn't. Yeah, feel exactly. That. I mean, it felt like, okay, we need for him to touch him. So yeah. they should have just like feelings. fist bumped or something like that or a high five and then he died. So <laughs> that would have been better. Yeah. I have very mixed feelings with that scene because I both like Craig, but at, at the same time, I think he's going so much over the top. And I do like his performance in this film, but that scene in particular, the interrogation, I'm like, he, he says things like, but it all went wrong, didn't it? <laughs> his mouth goes, didn't it? And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? And there, there are like, times, <laughs> specifically in that scene, but across the film, where, where he reminds me of the accent of his character in Knives Out. Really? He goes like low and... <laughs> It's, it's true. Really I mean, you have to. Some scenes you really oh, says that. I was I, I think, already yeah. experimenting with some. Yeah, he's already preparing. <laughs> he was doing this at the same time as Knives Out, so his mind was split between Southern and <laughs> James Bond. But uh, for example, I think I do. I do love his performance in this film in some instances uh, because I think there's a difference, and in most, on contrary to. Um, previous iterations where he's more few words called assassin in in this film he never stops talking he's very talky i think he's more matured as like a person and uh emotionally speaking and uh he's he's out of patience he just want to give his opinion which before he didn't so in m's office when he's kind of giving it to m which is the thing i like in this film is that is the fact that m's 
mistakes are center stage and he's kind of like this boss character with authority and respect and in this film he's he's, he's he has grayish tones he's he's he has a different side to him he, the whole film is about his own mistakes to save his country or to protect it but in the end it has serious consequences i mean he could go be court martial in you know because he's using bio bio you know weapons or whatever which is not correct so but he will be fine <laughs> anyway I love his dialogue in the office because it, it's it's breeds Phil, uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge. <laughs> He's all. I mean, I've seen Fleabag, so I, the wit that he uses there, it just feels so much like. Mm, the problem is that every scene, every scene feels like a different writer. <laughs> One of yeah, the yeah, many that, that the film had. That is true. That is I true. mean, but, but literally, yeah. it, it, you sense that in the dialogue. Mm. But the big problem regarding you know these big blockbuster films and regarding the third act and and being the threads being badly knitted together by the end and and all and the plot holes a lot of plot holes in no time in no time to die is the fact that I think there are much concern in the blockbusters they are much more concerned with getting at a, a final result a product can, that can be sellable and that has enough identifiable elements of personality uh, okay this is recognizable has bond yes check 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 that okay that. It makes the it makes the the table and it's set to launch, but then what they have in the end is very rushed aspects, both technically and narratively speaking. Because um, you know, in Goldfinger you would find like backdrop projections in in scenes that could be easily done and shot on location, like the hotel in Miami at the beginning of the film. You see backdrop project projections in moments that did you really need to shoot shoot this in studio? Couldn't you have done this like more days? Find the time to do this. Right. I don't I don't know enough information if it's either because of low budget or because they were lazy. But, you know, and then, you know, time to die. The whole budget went to extras falling on the ground, <laughs> falling on the ground. Yes. <laughs> <Get tech. laughs> you know, yeah. you know, time to die. You have the, the weak villain's motivation. You know, the, the whole fact that the nanobots, I don't buy that Q says, oh, nanobots are just for Christmas. You can't take them out. Really? Are we really going to give up? Because you can really see through it that. You say that because you want to condemn the hero when the time comes. Yeah. And, and, and nothing and we can do why, about it. That's why the ending feels forced, because it's so forced to say that we, there's nothing you can do about it. And not only on top of that, you shot Bond to death. <laughs> you put poison on him. I mean, it's something like, like, that, like, like nanobots that go into your blood. I mean, I've, I can imagine that they might, you might not be able to take them out. But the way they present this information, it's like... Uh, it's like know, it's, it's preparing people for yeah, the ending. It just feels like, like a they didn't even try it. They didn't even try to find they a solution. It's no, like, no, nah, no, no, you're, no. Done. It's just, you're done. You're done, exactly, mate. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing I don't like it. I don't like about it. Like, And you, they have some insane gadgets. Like, you can try. I, I'm sure you could try something. But still, yeah. I don't know. A magic lollipop that he can suck and then all the <laughs> nanobots focus on the lollipop. Put him in a... <laughs> Put him in a hazmat. Uh, in the hazmat. <laughs> Just, Bubble boy. Yeah, but I think the main problem really is the villain. I mean, we don't know what he wants. We don't know how he feels with Madeline. If he, if he clo feels, if he feels close to her or not. Um, and then the the her daughter. I mean, he's he's holding on to her. But then it's just like, oh, you if you want to if you want to go, <laughs> just go. Call me. Oh man, don't start me on that. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. It's, like, it's, what, it's, what was the point of all that? What was the point? Like, he wanted a friend. So, 
I can't believe that the film did that because it's so much. It's like you can you can see the writers in a room saying, "Well, we don't know what to do with this, <laughs> so we are just going to be easy about it. We're just going to make him leave the daughter, and she's going to run." A, it's so easy. Like, like she hey, runs, hey, here I am. Finds her parents. <laughs> yeah, here I am. And, and even so the easy. the two henchmen that are behind him keep looking at him like, "Are you sure you want to do this, sure man?" The fuck? Even <laughs> even they are questioning like, "Are you are you serious right now?" <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Jesus Christ! But then, for example, strong points in No Time to Die. I really like the editing for the action sequences. I think the music of Hans Zimmer, although it's not very identifiable, has much as Skyfall music is, has has separate from the film. It is identifiable within the. The more I watch the film, the more I, I am in love with the music and the soundscape within the action sequences because it really cuts to the raw sounds. If you really notice it, every cut cuts to a, a specific sound, the raw of an engine, the shot of a, a grappling hook, for example. And that within the, the fast-paced blocking of the actors with, you know, there's a lot of fast panning in the film, which I love. And it's it's great. It's kind of another approach to action, action sequences that is different from Skyfall, for example, where the action sequences, the exciting, gripping thing about them is that there's a challenging of expectations where Bond is just over surpassing over and over an obstacle, an obstacle that comes that becomes worse and worse. Like in the opening of Skyfall, you have the chase with the bike and then the chase on top of the plane, the fight on top of the plane, then the, the plane, the plane, I mean, the train and then the train comes to a height and he gets killed and fallen. What has happened to Bond? It's like this whole surpassing of, you know, obstacle upon obstacle. And, and here is much more the mechanics of the editing, which I love. In uh, in Goldfinger, the car chase sequence, which is also with the DB5. And I love the fact that, we, that they updated the DB5 chase sequence in, in this film, in No Time to Die, because it's so well made. The aerial shots, the, the, the traveling shots with the nose of the car coming in close, spewing through crowds spewing through the traffic it's i love i love how the film plays with elements the haze the fog in the forest like the the water the of the cars running through rivers and just the scraping of metal of the, with the car the donut it has a lot of imagination unfortunately of course because of the earlier films this is an aspect that is not so much you know well achieved in the earlier films because uh, the effects were other others at the time you don't have these you know taking the potential of it further. You have a lot of still shots, a lot of car mounts on people's reactions and Bond reacting to the henchman behind them. But one thing that is good for sure for me is that the editing of the action sequences of the is well needed enough that I can appreciate the car chase sequence within Goldfinger, for example. And also a thing that connects these blockbusters is the wide shots. They really rely a lot on the wide shots to introduce big like opening sequences to introduce spaces uh the, the width of the the sets of built by ken adams in the early 60s and of course saffin's lair is directly lifted from for example you only live twice kind of grandeur of the volcano layer uh, the minimalism of ken adams with fort knox kind of aesthetic it's i love that i love that the scope that they allow it for example uh, you have also M's briefing of Bond's mission is split in two in Goldfinger. They go to the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs' home, uh, which is like this grandiose mansion with candlelight dinner. Isn't that like the, the, the bank boss? Yeah, is it? I think it was the Minister of Foreign Affairs talking about, you know, exposition about Goldfinger. I'm not sure. But the fact that they had the filmmakers were conscious that we need to reveal more of this world, the layers of it. 
and the, the politics behind them and the people that are on about this Goldfinger guy. They could have done the exposition, the whole of it in M's office, but decided to split into and enrich the world of Bond, the scope of it. I think it's beautiful. It's something that really gets my my Bond fan in me all giddy. You know, it's just amazing. It's just yummy. <laughs> I mean, and, and Goldfinger, I mean, is built around a good villain with interesting exactly. motivations yes. and a it's... very clever plan. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and so it can it can endure a lot of non-action scenes and um and he has such and, a and it lives well within this this way yeah. of, of doing the the jumping between scenes whereas no time to die doesn't do this well because the plan and the villain is all over the yeah, the villain and the thing is safin is a legitimate I mean, i'm so sad because it's a pity because it's like i was saying to flow just earlier is that the structure is there the elements are there they really have good elements in there that they they are just the starting point of the idea. That's what happens in the film. It's just the starting point of the idea. It's like the first or second draft that they pick up. And they don't develop it further. Because the thing, the tie-in with Madeline, the relationship with Madeline. I love that opening where he looks at Madeline behind the eyes. It's so specific. It's so, you know, uh, specific. It's, it's, it's well-directed at that moment. You have the music. And I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing. He's seeing her beneath the ice and he's building this relationship. You know, his own death of the family. He feels like a lonely child and he's, she's a lonely child. And, and, okay, this can be developed further. This, this, and, and, this, and this is kind of picked up upon later on in the film, but it's just not developed enough. And this could be the center frame of the villain. The center frame, guys. Yeah. The center frame. He could be a very emotionally like complex yes. and interesting yes, guy yes. where you feel kind but of bad for is... him and feel for him. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. no, he's just but like, the... oh, fuck it. The just, world you, is know, you, know, you know how I feel? I feel like I just want to... It, there's so much legitimately good ideas in the script. They're just not well developed. I just feel like writing my own script about it. I just want to pick it up and do my own rendition and say, here, this is what should have happened. I actually had this discussion with Mike after seeing the film. We should make our own script of No Time to Die, like the other version. And then, and then there's like Rami Malek's performance. Like, what is he? What is he doing? I don't know. Why, I think he has why his moments. is he acting yeah, this no. way? It's a no for me. It's a no. It's for a me. no. It's a no. Okay. <laughs> it's too much. I think it starts well when when it's just his voice. Uh huh. Um, there are scenes where before he's introduced. Um, I don't remember when it is. Or rather, it's like it's okay. So the first scene is, I think. You don't really get to see that acting sort of him because he just comes to the house to shoot the mother. But afterwards, um, you only see his voice. And I think it's more interesting in acting there because you you don't really see all the things that he's doing with his face and, and just too much. It's like a performance. I understand why they cast him. Like he has a, a strange face, like for a villain kind of works. But I... I think he he's too weird looking in the, for this role <laughs> a little bit, and they put the makeup on. Yeah. It's like you're going way over the top for a character that I think should be more humanized and should yes. be more put on a. Just look at Goldfinger. He's just a normal he's dude, just a guy. A normal like, fat. Person. I would never, I would never want to see Bond and the the Hami Malek guy play golf together. You know, <laughs> but the yeah. Goldfinger guy is cool. Like that's fun. It's a good, and, it's a great scene. With his little Japanese rope. <laughs> <laughs> and Goldfinger has that amazing, really tense scene. 
where um, James Bond is is stuck to the table with a laser, and that sort of tension you never get that with No Time to Die. And yet it's such an, a simple scene, and even them speaking is extremely simple, like just an exchange of, you don't know nothing. I I do know sort of a bluff, and and yet it's a very good score as well. But but nonetheless, it's it's like bringing this simplicity to life. Goldfinger just has the charisma, man. He just has something. He's able the to, voice, to riff. The eyes, the yeah, eyes, he's, man. He's able to riff with Bond. He's, yeah. he's great. And the he filmmaking follows that, I feel like. The, yeah. the filmmaking is also has a lot of character in the and the film in general has a lot of character and a lot of charm that I feel like it's a perfect I understand why Goldfinger is probably used as like the as the the like the, the the perfect Bond film for a lot of people, or the one that encapsulates a lot of the. It was the first charming. one who really attained the formula. It became a cultural phenomenon by then, and uh, it really has a lot of first things like the Aston Martin DB5. Aston Martin becomes a staple of a brand for Bond, particularly DB5 as his classic car. Is it, it have Q coming in? I think. For the second uh, time, Desmond Lewin is my Q, in my opinion. I like uh, Wishaw in the role of, of Q in these uh, later films, but I really like Desmond. And it's just a lot of identifiable kind of trope things. The briefing with them, yeah, the, the third act kind of explosion and everything. I don't know. I, I personally, I find those kind of boring, but, but I understand why people like them. I think Q is a boring character. All in, in all the films, oh. I think the M briefings are boring. Oh, Get on with it. Oh, I don't I'm care. Killing. I I want to see bonds just bond around. Like uh -huh. this is why Honor Majesty's Secret Service is very good. Like the first half of the film, it's just him, you know, on a beach and then vibing in Portugal. A, in in Portugal. Portugal, yeah, that was very cool. He saves he the was girl. In Portugal. And yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I think. Uh, you were talking and about. By the way, just a note: yeah, yeah, No yeah, Time say. to Die lifts a lot from on Her Majesty's Secret Service. If you if you notice, the music is there. Even um, Louis Armstrong is in the score by the end of it. Uh, all that we have all the time in the world is directly lifted from Her Majesty's Secret Service. They're well aware of the emotional yeah. tie-in. With I feel uh, like that film is the, the on Her Majesty is probably the one has a lot of impact in filmmaking to filmmake or in terms of the. The intentions of the modern Craig films. Yeah, yeah, and it's visually stunning. And the the director is Peter Hunt, which is the editor of Goldfinger. He was the editor in previous Bond films, so it's quite funny to see the the the, the progression in the. I was career. watching the 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 Goldfinger the credit scenes, which is I really like that one. And I saw Peter Hunt. Oh, there he is. Yeah, the yeah. little man. And it's the first song. It's actually. The first Bond song ever. The other two films have it's like one of the better ones, but it's great. I really it's like. Very good. But no time to die's credit. I I really like Billy like Eilish's song. Yes, and yes. I like Goldfinger. I love the. Uh, this is the thing I like. I love about Bond as well is like, the opening credits, the title uh, sequence. It just, the the fact that he gives time to present it in a very classy way with the music and the design. I just love it. It's it's so relaxing to watch a Bond film. And that's the feeling I get from watching one film is the, the relaxation I get from. Um, I like that too. It's a good setup the for the film. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, it sets the win. mood. Sets the mood. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot about the story. It's like it's like little hints of what 
the story, the elements in the story will be, what it will be about. The virus Mission Impossible thought about that and said, let's just spoil the film in the credits. <laughs> yeah, fuck <laughs> Let's just show a little bit. Let's spoil everything. Yeah, yeah. I respect spoil that. Spoil everything. <laughs> tipo, faces from the past. What? <laughs> tipo, uh, there's just no time to die. Really, no time to die. I think it's the contrary. <laughs> <laughs> time yeah. to die. Time to die. And I really like when they say the name of the film, I just see Peter Griffin saying, ah, ah, they said ah. it, they said it. <laughs> like in this, you have Nomi, the other character, the Bond girl, which I, I kind of like her. Ah, but, she, but she says, it's time to die. It's time to die. But, you know, it, it's, ah, it's good close enough. enough. It's good yeah, enough. Close, close enough. enough. And there's this really interesting uh, scene where where Bond is leaving the, the sub pen. And he does the barrel uh, shot. Oh my God! But it's like I in the actual so... film. It's uh, very interesting. I don't, I I don't like... think that that was ever done. Actually, no, 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 no. Including... Like, uh, very meta, very meta. Yeah, it was very interesting. So amazing! I, I was like, oh my God, amazing! Loved it. <laughs> and another scene I like to redeem, like Seven a bit. Uh, yes, Remy has questionable choices, but at the same time, for example. On the thread of that thing, I, sh I think the film should have developed, which is a relationship of Safin with Madeline, which I think is the most developed thing of the least developed things <laughs> about him in the film, and could even then could have gone further. I really like the therapy scene between Safin and Madeline and the way that it's shot, because it's one of the fewer scenes where it's very still, it's like these medium shots, there are point of view made between him and, and her, and it's just very silent, no music, and it just focus on the acting and they really give room for the acting to breathe and I think it's very well made the, the play with between them uh what he wants from her him her discovering that that him is a figure of the past although it's very questionable because he never aged but fine <laughs> they yes, are close yes. the same age exactly. but I think that scene is a golden nugget in the film between the two for me I think it's I think his acting really shines through I don't know what you, what you think, but I like it. I mean, I, I I like in the beginning, but then he gets all psycho mode. <laughs> like, yeah, he's still why, psycho. Why? And then the, before the, the, the actual scene, the, Madeline's going up the stairs and a colleague of hers says, oh, he's kind of weird. And she says, oh, don't say that. It's whatever. She says something else. It's like, that's that's how you want to hint that. <laughs> That is, might be something... Well, but but she's right, you know, you don't say that about a patient. <laughs> we no, know but... that he's weird, <laughs> particularly, but... No, but the fact that they, that they need to include that at all, it's like... No, I think it's What natural. did that add to the... Okay, that's I maybe something a colleague might say and, and you uh, reprimand her. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's, that's, actually, that's the actual thing with me, that these films are all about plot these later films and there, there are no moments of just release and relief like in the earlier films you have just bond being around the golf scene the being with money penny the kentucky moments where he's just you know they're lying around talking with goldfinger you don't have that anymore so whenever a scene just comes up there's just a little mundane thing which is a, it's really the word the, the the love for the mundane it's lost in these later films where the plot just needs to go along it's just jumping from a to b i think skyfall does that a lot actually I think there are a lot of moments of connection between Bond and Silva, where it feels like the old films where they just Actually, take a break. Actually, Silva, and... I think Silva is the Bond villain for Craig, like the rem the one you remember, because his introduction is so good with the long shot and uh, the traveling forward. 
the rats. It's great. The rat analogy. You remember the rat analogy? No. It's so um, great, great. If you feel like that scene where they're talking and uh, and perhaps even the other one in, in outside where he's shooting the, the the apple from the from the oh yeah yeah it's iconic it feels scene. very much like iconic a golf scene. Goldfinger's golf scene oh yeah yeah the way yeah. they interact yeah and even money penny the way they uh, to to redeem this kind of the bond of the moment being lacking in mundane things the um, the scene where he's being shaven by money penny. There's a moment of release where you know we're not completely focused on the plot while we're talking about it, but you're building the character's rapport, and that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, what I was gonna say is that there's like a paradox or a contradictory nature, which is the the earlier films they didn't really explore Bond like his complexities and this like oh I'm feeling like he didn't feel bad. He did. He did. It's like he didn't really have feelings beyond the mission and fucking those girls and that's all that he cares about whereas the bond the 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 Craig films are being more you know exploring a, a different side of the character being more critical of his not critic but like exploring the the emotional toll that it might have yeah, on a, a vulnerability person. i would say that's the word in craig I a think psychotic a one but it's there <laughs> i think that's the win that you get with craig is that there is a vulnerability to his characters particularly present in casino royale uh which i think is both emotional and physical and i really like about throughout this tenure you see uh, that very much which you don't see with chance because sean is all about surviving at all costs he, he's always there he always will come above but i also feel like what they set up with Casino Royale, which I think is the best one, uh, it kind of goes downhill from there. They, they kind of just, it's not really explored. I don't know. Like I watched Casino Royale, it, it's about the guy, you know, it's the, how he becomes Bond, right? How he becomes this, essentially a tool, a tool for yeah. the state to by kill end, people. He's, and he's dead. Like he's line. like, yeah, the bitch is dead. He's like, yeah, he says the line. Like he's, being beaten down, everything he loves, you know, the girl he loves died in front of him, betrayed him, he thinks, and then finds out that didn't. Uh, all this shit. But then the rest of the films, the rest of the, the franchise is going back to like trying to humanize him and trying and showing the the complexities of the character. I feel like Casino Royale already did everything within a single film. And, the, the, and then the rest of the franchise is sort of retreading the same ideas and of the first uh, of the first in terms of the vulnerability uh, yeah exactly and how he becomes this unemotional emotional thing tool killing yeah. object i don't know i don't think like yeah i don't know i understand I think, I think that's interesting because i think it's one of the problems of of the craig era uh, era where they they bet on a bigger continuity between films which in theory is good because it does provide all these elements of recurring villains and in the bigger stories but yeah i think that's one of what you just said is a is a big you know con of of the fact that you have such continuity between films is that when you have such a, a strong film like casino royale and then you feel the need to continue with different stories and different villains you're kind of stuck into what you've just did um, in the previous film, and how can you top something like that, knowing that you have to continue the stories? So it's not like you're you're starting from from a new and uh, 
and you can build new villains and a new, uh, perhaps even tone of the film. You have, you're kind of stuck to the fact that you have stories continuing and arcs continuing. Yeah, agree. It's too much of a cinematic universe. I don't like that. Like I, I like the the singular nature of the Bond films a lot of the times. Interesting. Um, but it's yeah, a sin of having but the, all this because you had such a good first film, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Rather than the, the, the fact that you have a continuing fil- set of films is a bad thing in theory. I don't think it's necessarily that. I mean, but Casino Royale was just yeah. too good a film. The, the, you know you know what the mistake is? The thing is, they half-ass it. <laughs> they don't commit to it. And that's the problem from the very beginning, is that they have good ideas, they have good structure. The, all the films can, in all the films, can, good ideas can be found, lovely things, but they don't explore them to the fullest, to the fullest of their potential. The same goes with the continuity aspect. I think it's very interesting that they decided to, okay, it's a staple of Bond that there is this spiritual continuity of sorts that it's not kind of straight and we different actors come in of different ages so it cannot be the same guy. But at the same time you can tell and they leave hints that from 1962 to 2002, the last film with Pierce Brosnan, it is the same guy. And then 2006, Cousin Royale, which is the very first Bond book and Bond film of the reboot, reinitiates the whole thing. And I think it was interesting that they gave themselves the, the leeway to, okay, let's tell a whole story with an arc where there's this continuity character. I appreciate the moments where he's vulnerable throughout. I like that has a theme throughout. The, the real problem here is, I think, they didn't draft a plan for a five film stage. And there's a lot of things that they really want to commit to in No Time to Die that will really depend on those things being developed over five films in the substance behind the in, in the subtext behind the scenes which weren't like for example uh the vesper thing i think it was long gone and buried the fact that madeline at the start says you need to let her go you need to go to the grave first off like, why what? i thought this thing was dealt with <laughs> yeah, why does exactly. it need to go to the, to the grave and then the fact that blofeld this is a huge plot hole for me and why the conversation in the prison doesn't work blofeld says mm, i'm trying to imitate christopher <laughs> Uh, she led you there because of the goodness of her heart. And um, and first off, uh, Blofeld Waltz, um, <laughs> your whole scheme depended upon Madeline suggesting that he went to the grave and that them to went to Matera in the first place. Like, that's a whole stretch. I think that's, How... that's the worst part, then, actually. It's the, that the... they're there at the same time that they need to m- work past these things. Yeah. Like, we, th- we I mean, it's not even... Uh... It's not even something we we think about, but I mean, the th- the two things are not connected. That there's not this coincidence. I mean, not coincidence. That they're there at all. At all. Dealing it's, with this and that there's so many things built into the situation of the Matera sequence, which, by the way, the open. I think it's one of the most beautiful opening sequences in the franchise. That in this film is it's the longest actually because it's big. It's it's a dreams a dream flashback and then goes to the present, but uh, it's great, amazing visually. The whole film really. Uh, I th- well, uh, that's another point, but uh, I think that, um, yeah, it's the whole things, the lot of elements built into it, the Blofeld scheme, Madeline suggesting this, uh, and then, you know, it doesn't make absolute no sense, you know, he gets there, how would he predict that then he, you know, <laughs> he would blame Madeline for it, and then he legitimately seems, she legitimately seems to care for him, but he just... I think in, by the end, he believes that it wasn't her fault, but they just separate because he doesn't want to risk having her die on, her, on his arms. And I legitimately like the later on scene where 
to get reunited in Madeline's home. And I really feel his speech. I'm, I'm really touched by it. And that's where I think the performance works far beyond whatever the script can give in terms of emotional exploration. They are, because they are legitimately good actors, at times they can make the script live long past what, what, what is written on the page. Uh, which doesn't redeem yes. the fact uh, that... And it has good pieces of dialogue uh, yes, here yes. and there, good lines, I mean... Yeah, I think it has a... One it's more the overall yeah, structure uh, of the, the thing. The film I suffers think. a lot from badly made like exposition, very heavy exposition, five peoples in the same room talking, like for example the scene where the nanobot shit is, is explained by Nomi who went to a funeral of a Spectre agent and noticed that it contaminates other people within the same DNA. That whole thing which is a reference to Thunderball, by the way, the opening scene with the funeral. That whole thing could be done. We could have, you could be watching Nomi going to the funeral, doing these things and talking with headquarters while doing this exposition. It could be a whole mystery kind of spinach thing. Instead, we get five people in the same room, some quips about her double O code being, you know, uh, taken by a bond. Double O what? Double O what? And I'm like, this whole scene is so boring. This whole scene is so uninventive. And I think the film is kind of uh, exposition heavy. Then when he gets to London, for example, there's a lot of Bond going back and forth between dialogue scenes. Like he goes to Q's house, he goes to prison, he goes to M again, he goes, he goes away from, there's a lot of, a lot of this and, this and that, this and that, like jumping from A to B to, from conversations. I just feel this could have been dealt in a different way with, for example, that scene with Nomi going to the funeral you know, like uh, bumping the, the stakes, bumping the, the curiosity, the mystery, the, the on-action charisma. But no, they kind of get really stale by then. They, they became like uninventive with that middle point in the film. I don't know what you think. Too many, too many exposition scenes back to back after. The first half is pretty decent. I, I think it's good. I like yeah, the Cuba the Cuba sequence oh, is really the cool. The Cuba scene is amazing. The action scene is amazing. The the real the real problems for me start getting in by the third act really when with the, the, there's usually the reveal of the Plansville and everything and it's just the mistakes become you know unavoidable by then I think just so many piled together and it affects the whole film behind it. I don't know. I think there's something bigger, bigger here. I think <laughs> the film just isn't that cool. That it, cool. It, it's like um, it's like it's trying to do a lot of things and please a lot of people, and then there's also the problem of you feeling, you feel, you really feeling that they had that like the film had a lot of writers, so there's shifts in tone. I think often and um. In the dialogue itself, you feel like certain quips. Sometimes there are such good lines that you feel like, okay, someone clearly was the one responsible for this one here. <laughs> because it just doesn't fit the overall <laughs> scene in quality terms. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and then there's the character of Nomi. As you say, we could have seen her do more stuff, but she's, she always feels like... The one that 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 is a new 007, there's sort of this childish clash between them, and then they get over it because she decides, okay, you can have the number back. Okay, great. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, why? Why did you decide this? Because Bond is gonna die. Uh, whatever. I mean, it's 
the decision came before he died, so it, it it literally was so that you could die as a double of seven. Uh-huh. There was no reason why she would she would have given the number at that time. Was... Were you expecting him to die when you saw the film for the first time? No, I'm saying this in hindsight. That's in clearly hindsight, the only okay. reason. At no, the no, time, I mean, okay, le- she decides asking, to be. What did you did you thought? Well, Lel already knew it, <laughs> but uh, I didn't knew, and I was flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. Flabbergasted when I saw that happen. My, my literal reaction was, "Oh my god!" There was a certain time where I, 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 I got, I, I, yeah, understood what it, what they were going to, uh, to do. Um, I think it was when he was all alone and the things were closing, and it kind of felt like uh, there was something there. And then when that thing reopened, I was like, "Okay, yeah, he's gonna go you back, think? and something's gonna go wrong." Oh my god! And then when he when he gets shot, like James Bond getting oh, shot yeah. in the that, third that's, act, that's like... when you know. That's when you know that. Oh my god, no! <laughs> that was when I was like, "No way! No way! No, no, don't do, do, do this to me!" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shot the... and, But and I think. Gets but, uh, and I'm like, oh my fucking god, no! <laughs> anyway, but even so, I think they they overdid it because the ending just feels um the real ending, like the or rather his ending, like going up and, and then looking at the sky. I think that's a bit too much. I don't think they uh, visually, needed to show like, him like getting fucking blasted. You could have cut visually it early. becomes kind of soap opery. I don't I don't know yeah, if you got agreed. this as well. There's this close-up suddenly of his face, like looking kind of emotionless, like. Ah, I mean, I can get the, your point. I understand it, uh, but uh, I know it touches and, me. And the, the, the general thing of him going up to see him to see the sky is oh. like. <laughs> uh, God, it's a I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, I can understand that, but I don't know. Me as a Bond fan, I get that he wants to, you know get out there and see and be with the world i would do that i wouldn't be stuck in the in that bunker no. i want to breathe the air and just curl up and it. cry bitch I'll curl up and cry you know i want to i want to see the world one last time you know i, I get the points but i find fine i mean i can understand fine. the form of it like um... yeah no, i thought it was a bit much personally yeah that's it a film i think sometimes becomes prisoner of needing to be emotional and it, it that that comes out um, here and there, I think. I mean, there's but certainly the an emotional manipulation. I feel emotionally manipulated by that ending because it's not deserved. Because precisely because of that nanobot question of Q saying it's not solvable, and the the villain being weak doesn't help because it's like you're losing to this guy. This guy is the the ultimate Bond villain. Come on, man! Like he could be. He has material for it. Like he has potential for inner conflict, but you haven't really developed it. And it's so messed up. I'm feels. It's such a shame. It's a whole shame that you couldn't have done this better, in the writing. And it's like these people. In the you know, it's like um, they talk about the film, how it's emotional, compelling, and uh, in some ways, yes. But then you didn't develop it enough. You know, it's just this, when they come to the interviews and the selling of it. I'm like, you know, in the in the market, in the press junket. I'm like, you know, is it though? You could have gone further. Some elements, yes, but you know, you could have gone further with it. And and it's already long as it is, so it's like That's clearly there was room to, to redo things yes. mm-hmm. because you clearly had the time to. And you know, I think there was another. I think the film you you had another film here going on, because there are times in this film where I see people mouthing lines that aren't there. Like there's a moment with Safin and 
and Madeline, where he's talking about uh, you bore the, the child of an assassin despite his rejection. And then they're talking, they have this little moment in the lair where, where they, they talk about how this dissimilar or similar they are. And there's a moment where it cuts to her. And quite often in films today, they do this where um, because the, in this shot reverse shot situation, when they cut to a person that becomes the center frame of, of the shot and you have the, the other person is just over the shoulder, your eyes are focused on the eyes and the mouth of the person who is the center frame of the shot. But if I drive my attention to the one that is over the shoulder, I can see Safin mouthing something. So I think there was an, he had another evil scheme. You know, there was something other in the whole thing, something to do maybe with the poison garden. I don't know. The poison garden just seems something with so much potential. It's his whole family shtick that, you know, there's the whole scene around the garden as well that is so lovely, I think, with the kid and the menace of it. By the way, the fact that Bond has a child in this film, a family, I think is such a, a subversion for the character that I find interesting. That, for example, the fact, going back to the fact that the early films have mundane scenes, I like the fact that he's making breakfast to her. And that scene could be much longer, you know, we could, before the whole action kicks in and the plot must go on. It's just so compressed and I would much rather much like a whole meal with Bond, a little, a little, you know, casserole, you know, some, some rice to go with it, want some meat, <laughs> it's just a real family moment. That's, that's new, that's brand new, never seen in the Bond franchise. That would be interesting to see. But I really like the idea of the daughter and he's so sweet. It's just because, you know, it's naturally, it, he just met the kid. And you need, when, whenever you have time to really develop just a little bit, that relationship, that would be the moment. And I think it wasn't really picked up. It was only slightly. The fact is that these people, the writers, the producers, seemingly they, they contact themselves with little things, with little things that, yes, they're the beginning of good ideas, but you don't go further with them. And anyway, Safin, I think he had another plan. I think there was something else. And, and that keeps up in my shame that... And with so many writers, it doesn't surprise yeah. me that there was I mean, another film here. Five writers, guys. Five writers. Just... Uh... And the thing is, they went on to shoot, you know, the film and while filming to still have the script going on, the writing going on. So that's not the right, uh, which clearly states one thing that the priority is more like in at arriving at that final product <laughs> to sell you know, to audiences instead of having a good film, a solid, all in all, solid film. I think it was also you know, a victim of having to do with being the last film and in a sense, wanting to raise these stakes by killing Bond. So th there was this second film happening, which I think was the goodbye. <laughs> it was the normal action Bond film, and there was the goodbye, farewell to Craig Bond film. And coupling these two, I think, was the hardest task and probably where it failed. Because it has a lot of characters, I mean, this film. And there's also Felix, which dies. So a lot of things happening and... and a lot of directions uh, to go. I mean, Blofeld reappearing, Bond and his family. I mean, you know, it's too the, much. I actually felt the orchestration with Spectre was between Spectre and Safin was well made, and, and the intentions of Safin, his plan towards Spectre, the fact there was another villain in the background trying to move above Spectre's own plan because they needed to tie the knot on Spectre's intentions from the last film. Spectre was such so badly portrayed in the last film. That the opening with this film with Spectre actually being a threat, a phantom, was, I mean, I saw that on the cinema and I was like, yes, this is it, this is Spectre, we are back, 1960s, Sean Connery, Spectre action, and I was so happy 
that it was a menace, you know, we had this henchman with Yai, and then he was saying, Madeline is a daughter of Spectre, and I'm like, yes, let's go, let's go, and Blofeld, and it was amazing, I was thrilled, and then they really got it to be a threat, which in, in the in Spectre, the film, it was so numbed out, and I think that was the most, the best accolades of the film, and I think how Safin acted upon Spectre's own plan of killing Bond, which in itself, it's a controversy, because... Blofeld says, I never want to kill you. I want to give you an empty world. So which is it? You tried to kill him in Cuba. <laughs> anyway. And yeah. um, so there's no, a lot I mean, of comments. The fact that Spectre was such an underwhelming film is also a problem on this one. Because it stretched the narratives into this film. I mean, the fact that in the beginning of No Time to Die, Madeline and, and James are close. But then it kind of feels like she betrayed him. So they kind of split. And then they have to get back together. I mean, if that was done right... All of those things would have happened in Spectre, you know, better to a point where in the beginning of No Time to Die, they're just very close. And the whole thing is about this global huge threat that threatens also his life for Madeline and his family. And so it just start, it just goes from there into how do they deal with being together against this guy. But no, I mean, the film goes beyond that. They... They are together, and then there's the threat, and then they become together again. So it's too much to deal with, uh, I think, in the film. Uh, and that's why the film splits yeah. into these two things. Whereas actually, it could have been a more solid uh, effort. It's just, it's just, it should have been, if these two things, Spectre and Safin, in it, I think it's just a matter of, it could have been written better. If it, if it was written better, I mean, I think that actually those are two things that are, for me, rightly balanced. I like the fact that Spectre continues on, but it, it stops being rightly balanced, I think, when it comes to Cuba. And there's this whole thing, who done it, who is working for whom, because there's the primo, the henchman with Bionic Eyes, stops working for, he's working for Blofeld, then he works for Safin, and it's, it's hinted in the film, the change, but it's a little in the background. And then Oberchev, a, a big plot hole for me is that Oberchev is being interrogated by Blofeld in the boat with Felix, and then... Bond is trying to look for the snitch who knew that he was in Cuba, and then Bobrichev looks at Logan like he's working for Blofeld. But we both know yes, that Logan his character is, is so Seth stupid. It's so it's like I'm sick of these characters. They're supposed to be intelligent. Like he's a fucking scientist, like huge in a huge company working on this huge weapon sort of thing. Like he's a smart person, and then he all he does is stupid things, and he talks in a stupid way. Like when he's about to die, he's like. Oh, you, you don't know. Safin is going to win. And, uh, yeah, what are you doing here? And then just give him an excuse to be pushed into the water. It's like, why are you so stupid at this time where you clearly are not? You do not have the upper hand. And you, think, <laughs> and you uh, do the stupid thing of arguing yeah. with Nomi. It's like, it's such think, a stupid person. I realize that a lot of the things you don't like about it, I like. <laughs> I think, Tipu. I like that Oberchev is a silly guy because that's. Yeah, I, I like just accept that too. It, it's, it's part of Bond's charm. It, it has this over the top. I mean, there are times that it works, but I think when, when you clearly shouldn't, it doesn't make sense. To, to I don't know. Work. I think there are a lot. There are scientists who are stupid. They're, they're good at science, but like, they're dumb guys too. And he's, a, he's an asshole, and he's a prick, and he's awkwardly, socially awkward. I don't know. Of course, he's a made-up character. He's, he has all the, well. all, the, all the things of being fake. You know, he's too much. He's over the top. But that, that's kind of the, the charm for me. I don't know. I guess I was a little annoyed. Annoyed. <laughs> he's annoying. Overachieve. Fair enough. Fair he's enough. He's annoying. Fair enough. He's annoying. He can be. 
But the main thing was the, the, the death scene, because it's another example of how characters dying and, and, and other moments like these feel like excuses for other things. And mm -hmm. it's like it's never warranted. Things just happen. And a couple of lines seem to be enough when, when they shouldn't. Um, and that was, that was annoying because of that. Because it felt like, okay, we need to dispose of him. So let's just have him be silly again. And, and so Nomi can push him and say a, a cool line. Uh, there are other moments where it feels like like it would have been earned. But here, I don't think. I don't think. I don't think so. But uh, yeah, anyway. I mean, we could go back to Goldfinger because uh, we were talking about that scene where they all faint. And even oh, though yeah, we, that scene is really funny. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, it was a it was a theater sort of act. I think. I mean, that's how I interpreted that it, they were all faking it. But were they? Uh, I don't. I mean, that's not the impression I, I got. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a plot hole. I mean, that's one of the problems I have with the third act in Goldfinger. He says the the nerve gas kick, you know, put you to sleep twenty four hours, but then Felix Slater seemingly is put to sleep, the the CIA friend of Bond, but then he wakes up. Yeah, but but he, but he says that uh, that that pussy galore helped them switch the cans. Switch the cans to to what? What cans? The to nothing. Cans? To nothing. And then and they were like acting so that then uh, they could uh, wake up. You know, for me then... that's a that's a problem built upon a problem because the relationship with pussy galore I hate it. Yes, that. but that's that's I think the bigger plot hole is is how quickly the pussy switch, galore changes. Yeah. Yes, the switch doesn't make sense at all. They don't the, the their loving relationship that they want to get with them too doesn't happen. I don't believe it. I think he's quite rapey. <laughs> I mean, so. quite rapey is being like <laughs> soft. You know, he practically rapes her. Like, yes, yes, it's like uh, it's really strange. It's it's but her whole her whole attitude, the way to write her by that point is just. The, the the whole way to justify the scene is like, oh, you have to be nice so the, the CIA guy is looking out for Bond to believe that he's okay. Uh, fine, I guess. Right. It, but they go to a barn and they start... The whole thing about it is that, oh, Pushy, you, you also know Judo. And so that's the way for them starting to get all friendly. and But that scene, even the sound guys, even the sound guys were, were in on it because it, it feels so childish because even when they sort of grab each other and then flip there's these sound effects mm -hmm. like uh, rrr, rrr, yeah where it feels like it's just a normal playful thing but then yeah. but he rapes her it's like no no this is not this is not they were, the same they were thing. in the cut room with the moviola and they were, they were like themselves. wait a minute what is happening here what is happening here <laughs> like uh, albert Guy? you know broccoli the producer uh, albie uh harry maybe should do something put a little bit of music in there it will help it will of help, course you, you hear know. those sound effects you think oh yeah yeah they, they are in love he's just <laughs> yeah he wants it yeah yeah, yeah right. he wants no it. i mean yeah. this is how you love this is how i love <laughs> he's so bad in that jesus jesus yeah they could have they could have cut that scene and there are other things i have an issue with the way he the way he escapes prison is so stupid. Like he smiles at the at the Jap guy. Oh, I he, like that. That's go, cool. They like ah. <laughs> that's awesome. It's, it is funny, but it's the moment where the balance between taking it seriously, the that's funny, really cool. it just it goes away, and it's just it's just stupid fun. What well, we've seen the prison where he's like, like looking through the little door, the little window, and he's like smiling. Like, oh. Smiles goes away. Uh, yeah. Keeps looking. That, that was really funny. <laughs> so okay, he really went away. What happened? Like, is I imagine the guard, the prison guard, just thinking, "Oh my god, I can't believe Bond went all Shawshank Redemption on me, and he has a hole in there." 
I think it, for me it's like that 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 would work. It's funny. I mean, because it's like he's preparing the guards to then disappear, like in out, then just out. Like, uh, what? And then it's like the whole thing of Goldfinger explaining his evil Grand Slam scheme to the gangsters, which are annoying guys, by the way. Hey, what's going on? What is this? Merry-go-round? <laughs> It's that like... scene, I felt like they 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 dubbed it afterwards. That's the one I felt that where he where he is exp- where James overhears uh, about Operation Grand Slam. It felt like uh, an overdubbing, especially on the guys uh, on the on the Goldfinger. You, you see his mouth. There are other moments where in the film where Goldfinger is supposedly talking, but he isn't talking. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it happens. Is uh, the whole character dubbed though? Isn't that yeah yeah dubbed he is he does he didn't speak English um, and uh, it's just you know that whole scene is just so Bond can hear the plan through the module through through the you know, the, the thingy thing the Fort Knox uh, like plan oh, that's cool and you see his uh, eyes through the windows right yeah yeah it's a cool thing <laughs> but you know it's then he kills the gangsters Goldfinger it was for nothing you know it's just for him to for Bond to know the plan and to further the plot along. I don't know. It, it seemed. I mean, uh, yeah, it's not great, but like that's just that's pretty much all the Bond films have that dumb stuff. I feel like. I don't know, but this was pretty dumb. <laughs> like through, throughout the film, I was pretty okay. There was nothing dumb to me, like uh, or exceedingly dumb in Goldfinger until that third act where some things become glaringly like what was like if you were going to dispatch yourself of the gangsters. Maybe do that throughout or use them in an intelligent way, but I don't know. It just seemed like. And it seems like he has two kinds of nerve gas, a gas that kills and a gas, and a gas that puts you to sleep. So which is it, Goldfinger? It's like, he explains it, it becomes his, the gas becomes his trademark, but then it's like he kills them, I don't know. And um, we were talking about the budget and the fact that Goldfinger film has uh, little uh, action scenes. And then, you know, you get to the bank, you feel like this is, okay, this is a studio stuff built kind of sense, okay, this is going to go in the, the usual Bond direction, they're going to blow everything up. This is the grand finale, this is where the money went, but then, no. No. <laughs> Just gunmen <laughs> gun fighting in the outside. But actually, I actually like the whole scenario, it's pretty cool, the whole uh, orchestration. No, no, yeah, of the scenario. Scenario. Yes, I agree. And uh, the fact that Goldfinger, I think, in addition to his character, is how sleazy it is. He changes to American... Uh, costume. He kills his own man. He kills his own partner. He kills everyone who comes in. He he flies off, and the 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 main villain is really not killed in the the grand finale. It's only after in the plane, and he sucked off the plane. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a, a grandiose <laughs> kind of silly yeah. death. Yeah, that scene is silly. <laughs> yeah, he flies off like a balloon. I like this. I like. like <laughs> he sucked out. Thinking of like ranking Bond villain deaths, the, the way it's just it's so good to to, to give them. Give them out deaths that are crazy and inventive, you know, to just become a thing on its own. And if you and if you see a curious thing like a, a little um, trademark of these early films, that Bond is always on the lookout when he enters a new room for bugs and such. Like in Doctor No, in From Russia With Love, and here again, in a way, he's looking out for who is looking inside the room. That's like the filmmakers trying to assess what the, what the real spy does. In, not in the fantastical sort of way, but in the serious way. So in on the plane, he's looking out for, you know, in what way are these guys like spying on me? So that's interesting. This recurrent theme thing. Any any last thoughts? I was going to say that uh, 
I feel like Skyfall is the mistake. Like it goes too much back to like traditional because the, the first two, the Casino Royale and Quantum, I feel like there's a, a clear break with the tradition of Bond, Jeez. with the tradition of Bond in a lot of ways. And then Skyfall seems to be about restoring that and like, oh, we bring back Money Penny, even Q. The whole plot, the subtext seems to be about the relevance of the MI6 and the license to kill 007 program. I don't know. I feel like who cares? It was know. the, you know, it was the 50 <laughs> years. It was the 50 years of Bond. So they made a film that reflected that and that came back with that. So I understand. But like, it's always been irrelevant. Who cares? Like, just, you know. Okay. I talk from the perspective of a Bond fan, so. No, no but I don't mean yeah, Bond yeah, yeah. as a character or uh, I, uh, I mean the MI6 and the license. Like, it's not reflective of reality in the real sense. Like, mm. like if it, if this was a more honest if Bond in general was more honest, like he wouldn't be that much of a hero. He would be way more like, you know, he would be doing way more fucked up shit, way more gray area shit throughout the whole thing, not just in these new films. So like, I feel just like, just make this, the, the goofy spy thriller and get done with it. And that's why I, I like Skyfall because it's really well built. Like, and the sequences are great, one after the other, I feel. The villain is great. But the subtext of, like, the relevance. And Spectre continues with this, too. Like, this whole debate on whether... Spectre, Spectre overstayed that theme. I didn't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Was done, so. but, uh... but you can look at Skyfall more uh, simply uh, in the sense that it's really about Bond and Silver and how both these men have this higher person guiding them and to what extent is just a guidance and more of a control i think at least that's how i interpret um this uh the overall theme of, of skyfall it's this m working as a puppet and you know the extent that that's good um to the lives of these people or not and how it shapes uh, how it shapes them i can yeah. see the more political subtext I, I just, uh, for me, it wasn't... Uh, yeah, I get, like, I don't know. It's a standout, I guess. I live, I live it very intensely. I don't, I also <laughs> think the, I the emotional death of M, I don't care about her. Really? Like, you didn't care about her? Like, Silva is the only character there that I feel like is interesting emotionally. And it, like in his relationship with them, I guess too, but it's not her. Like she's just a fucking, she's a, a bureaucrat. She's like a, a telling orders. Like, yeah. I think it's not exactly, I think she brings a, a charisma and tenderness to relating with with Bond in specific as an agent that is different, particularly being I him guess. an orphan. And I think retreating that's that even part more of him, that backstory. <laughs> <laughs> and that's very intentional why they bring that up, and that he's an orphan. Like the, obviously. It's a lot easier to shape someone into a, a killing machine if they but have that's like... very interesting that that's contrasting yeah, there that, that's complex yeah, yeah, of course i agree but like that doesn't make me like her more it makes me like her less like she's a little he gave, she gave him a job <laughs> no you could have fucking worked anywhere <laughs> you don't have to turn him into a killer like it makes bond more interesting for sure but her but like no i don't she turned him into a killer but at the same time 
with tenderness, with motherly love. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I don't care. No. <laughs> to be fair, I think most of the emotional um, impact of of M's death, I think, comes from more the relationship with with Silver rather than M's relationship with Bond. Um, I think, I mean, okay, she dies in Bond's arms, but I think it's mostly built around Silver and M. And how them their relationship is much more you know fucked up than than probably we would say between James and and M. Um, yeah, that's true. I agree with that. That's why I said in her relationship with Silva maybe, but even then, it just for me humanizes more Silva and by extension Bond because uh, like Silva is sort of like what Bond could become if she does the same thing to him, like the lets him die because yes, yes. it's a positive, it's an overall positive thing to do. And I feel like that's not really explored that well in that film. And then not in the subsequent films either. Like, I guess in this one, No Time to Die, there's a M again, it's no, no longer the same one, but uh, he does some fucked up shit, messes up, makes a mistake. But again, I don't feel like the films are you really that critical? They're just like, yeah, sometimes these states people, they do bad stuff, but they have good intentions and that's it a lot of the times. And I don't know, I feel like that's, uh, I understand why they do that, but it's also not very interesting. Well, that's, that's the duality. It, for me, it, that was one of the things that worked in no time to die. It's the duality that he had good intentions, but he did a terrible thing. But that's such a common through. trope in these films. It's always that. It's like, oh, we did a fucked up thing with good intentions. Like, of course, he's the good guy. You have nothing else you can do for him. I don't know. Like, well, because you're, you're in these films where you're constantly dealing with, you know, death and mayhem and causing death to others, you know, you're, you, you need to deal where's the good side of a character who is surrounded by this world and who deals with these kind of things. Particularly, apparently, in Craig's tenure, it has a lot to do with death and relating to death in a way. <laughs> Uh, even in you know looking at the grave of his parents with Silva looking at the grave, there's always a hint to, to, to how he relates to that. And they, I think sometimes they overly do it with calling him an assassin. You're an assassin. How is she going to relate to you, my daughter? You know, when Mr. White talks to him, they, they overly make it the theme literally in conversations. But uh, you know, for me, you know, that's the way you can do it. It's just the thing. It's always about how can you do it smartly? How can you do it in a way that goes beyond the cliche? But uh, I don't know. To me. You know, I think you, I think I, I am critical of him in No Time to Die when he does that, because Bond is critical as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. It You're raises some questions. It. I mean, it, how Bond knows apparently that there was a Hercules project. He is not that long in the job. No, Ralph finds him. He's not that long. No, Mallory. So, when did this happen exactly? Or is that back office stock that we don't you don't know about? Uh, like the, the break for coffee and then they start talking. So that Heracles project, what happened with that? Oh, you know, just, you know, this Russian scientist that affects, oh, really? Oh, amazing. Well, t t talk to me about that. I'm just going off to, you know, chase Blofeld or something. <laughs> 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 Don't forget to, uh, you know, take out the, the Aston Martin. That, by the way, the Aston Martin DB11, no, DB10 in a Spectre is one of the best features of the film. I think it's great. Although the, the chase is not amazing I, I love the car beauty, yeah a beauty i mean it's a beautiful car it was intended to be an update a modern update of the the db5 mm -hmm. so it's it's very interesting the design of the car very lean lean few lines you know it's beautiful 
It's just it's just a tease. The, their idea of subverting the cliche is having no gadgetry in the car working, <laughs> which to me is a, is a fucking tease. Like boring. Please give me the gadgets. Don't tease me with this. Yeah. Like this chase is already so poorly filmed. There's no one around yeah. in Rome at night. It's so boring. <laughs> all is filmed in fucking sepia. It's it's yeah. all like brownish. It's boring to look at. That's why No Time to Die is so beautiful because uh, despite being TV, I think No Time to Die is very TV. You know, serial coverage. I don't like it. Yeah. But the editing does a lot of good work in terms of the action and the colors are very vibrant. That's what I love about it. To me, it's a cool film, actually, uh, because the sunset, the sunrise, the way they use it, they make it a very both sad and happy nostalgia film for me. I think I understand the color thing you're saying. I think it's too too much. It's a weird um, mix. It's like. A... I can't describe it. It's very uh, internal. Uh, it's uh, it's neither amateur nor professional. <laughs> really? Oh my god, that's so specific. Neither amateur or professional. Yes, especially the scene, like that feeling gets carried into um, close-ups where it feels like the way they light it. It feels like the background is CGI. And I get this specific you know example. I do. I do agree that the lighting, they the overuse the looks the so artificial. Yeah, yeah. It's very artificial. In quieter scenes, like when Bond is talking with Nomi at his house, and you see blue in the walls, like he has spotlights in the in the in the water pools around the. That that is fake. That doesn't happen. That yeah. blue is fake. That would be like okay if a film if the film maintained that like very hyper stylized. The or very artificial. I don't think maintain. it does. I don't think it does. I, I mean, think it's, it's like in the middle. I think it's like in a middle term of like realistic. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. They're I don't constantly know. using blue, orange, and red, which is like the basic, you know, contrast contrast lighting between warm light and cold light, and it's it's the office at um, you know. Madeline's uh, when when Madeline is, is with doing therapy with Saf and same thing, blue all over with uh, yellow or orange in the, in the mirrors in the uh, above or when you are in am's office when the screen is on you know that that screen that powerpoint screen that is on the wall it just uh shines blue on them the blue is a constant thing and it's it's a very it's sometimes very fake it brings a, a fakery to, to the scenes it never felt so fake as in in bond's house because i don't know what that what that light is doing there that light does not come from anywhere it's like he has a pool and he has lights beneath it doesn't make sense. Why didn't Sam Mendes direct this? Why was was there a reason? Like, I feel like he sh he was doing. I don't. All right. I don't think so. <laughs> Actually, I was like, I think he did a good job with Skyfall, but with Spectre, I, I was know. very disappointed. I don't. I, I don't. Very I don't understand what. Explain to me what's so bad about Spectre that it, in relationship with Skyfall. I thought like Skyfall is better, but Spectre is like fine. It's okay for a starter. Like the, this, the, the whole. Blofeld, I think he was extremely weak. Spectre was, there wasn't a menace in Spectre. The relationship they want to make me believe that he has a relationship with Madeline, a loving relationship that makes him give up and do that lame thing. You know what? No bullets, not gonna kill you, Blofeld. It's, first of all, cliche and badly made to develop the relationship. And then the whole plan being, you know, surveillance around the world, I feel like I've seen that before in some other spy movie. And then uh, the action scenes, it's, it's so boring, it's so, they're so little inventive. I think most because, once again, 
uh, Daniel Craig had an injury, and so they really made the action sequences a little bit, you know, smaller. Like they make him pursue De Batista on a plane, and so he's sitting on a plane and he's doing the thing. <laughs> and a plane against cars is not. Uh, if the plane had, you know, like machine gun something, and it's just not, you know, yes. just make it. <laughs> I, don't I, I don't know. For me, these films are the action is always boring, pretty much. So well. And yeah, that's the standpoint that's, where we differ. I, I like, yeah. I really like the action. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and I really value the action. So, yeah, but I do agree. Inspector, I think it's a bit boring. Yeah. And the the visual is like boring. It's like Jesus Christ, it's ugly. No, I don't <laughs> think visual. It's 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 yeah, ugly. I don't know. I don't know. It has some nice moments. They have some it's nice a bit, moments. It's yeah. orange. It's very orange. It's that very I, orange. I'll give you that. It's very. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very unnecessary, down. and in comparison to Skyfall, which is very colorful, I exactly. I, and I in comparison to no, to no Time to Die, it brings me up. All right, it, it, that it I wouldn't me do. Up, you know, if I compare Spectre to No colorful. Time to Die, I think it's yeah more colorful. No Time to Die, but it's not like a visual feast or anything like that. I think No Time to Die is a visual feast in comparison to to Spectre. I don't. I think the camera movement. I in, mean. Sure, the mise en scene sometimes. Yeah, the mise en scene of Sam Mendes is much better. Here, it's I feel like I'm watching like a, a like eye level TV show. In, in yeah, no that's the die. thing. I think No Time to Die makes it seem as if they 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 achieve this level of, of light and color through very abrupt, uh, intense color correction. Whereas the other films were just better lit. Uh, I agree with that, and I agree it does look TV. I totally No Time to Die looks yeah. TV. But visually, just in the color of it and how the, I think the work of editing, especially in the actions, it's more vibrant to me than Spectre. And Skyfall is better than Spectre. I, I think being the same director, I find it a bit No, no, no. I, I think obviously it's better. But I, mean, I don't think it's like a, an insane dip of quality for no, me. No, no, it's like, not. Maybe it's I'm just, being too, too, yeah, too yeah, maybe. stressful about it. But no, it's not. Of course, I think, you know, if he's a good director, I think he still did. Nice job. There are interesting scenes. I, I like the meeting scene in Spectre, how he how to tries to evoke past Spectre meetings. I don't think it is a boring scene like some people say on the web. That, that no, it's actually pretty interesting that everything becomes silent and he's menacing and all. So I think yeah. I mean, all I'll say. I think as an end, final, as an end uh, note. As an end note, I think Spectre, the scene where Daniel Craig. Is telling Madeline to not look at the footage of the father committing suicide or whatever. I think that's more emotionally effective than anything. Or not more emotional, not more emotionally effective than anything. Or not time to die, but more like more earned and feels more like a real moment between the characters than anything on time to die, hmm. especially. Like the the ending of No Time to Die is sad, and I feel for it, and I feel sad because it's like oh, this special agent was finally settling down as a family and doesn't yeah. get to enjoy it. It's the same as in Honor Majesty's Secret Service in a way, and that's yeah. why you feel sad because he's lost the thing that he just gained. Yeah, he's an orphan. He he's always fought all his yeah. life. <laughs> he's never had anyone. <laughs> he's an orphan. On top of all, all that, is an orphan. I mean, goddamn. That's all for today. If you'd like to reach out and suggest a film for the next episode, you can find us on the podcast official Instagram and Facebook pages. Don't forget to subscribe, share this episode, or simply give us a like. 
That's how our podcast can grow ever more groovy. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Bye Bond fans.